You're listening to Tech Nest, the PropTech Podcast. In each episode, you'll hear from PropTech founders, investors, and industry veterans on how they're using tech to change the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. Discover market opportunities, interesting data, growth tactics, and trends driving the industry forward. This isn't just another podcast about making money in real estate. This is about how we live. And now your host, Nate Smoyer. Hey, Donald. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Nate. Really appreciate you having me. Now, before in the pre-show, you taught me a new word. Start, ah. I'm going to start right there. What, what was that word you used? Anthropomorphication. I was talking about uh, when you anthropomorphize, you take an inanimate or non-human object and give it a human, uh, a human characteristic. So, like, if you say that your house is angry at you, that's anthropomorphizing. It was in the context of, uh, do we call it real estate business analytics or do we refer to it as Reba? And I said I like the anthropomorphication of Reba. Right? We think of Reba knows, right? Like Reba knows. Do you know? Reba knows. I. I <laughs> That is a word, and uh, I, you know, I, I'd love to know just from others if they've ever had that word thrown at them. But when you say it like that, it makes me think so much of some of my my most recent adventures. One of them, you said, as the house angry at you. I felt like the weather was mad at me because it threw me some curveballs on a re- recent uh, ultra trail race I was on. But um, yeah. Well, what a way to kick off here! I've got Donald Davidoff. He's a, a seasoned veteran when it comes to real estate tech data more than 22 years uh, in the industry. He's led the efforts in creating some of the first pricing revenue management softwares for the multifamily housing industry, something that we're gonna get into a little bit, but we're still trying to figure out. Uh, and currently, uh, he's co-founder and CEO of Reba. So Donald, why don't we start with this? What has changed since the first revenue management system that you helped oh, create? God. Yeah, what a great question. So, I mean, so much has changed. Um, you know, I, I actually say one of my favorite uh, uh, questions to pose myself when I'm talking to folks is sort of what does 2023 Donald know that 1999 Donald didn't know and 23 Donald wishes he could have taught 99 Donald because it would have made LRO so much better. Um, and there, there's a couple things. I mean, I will tell you, um, I mean, back then working at a pricing and revenue management software company, you know, client list of who's who and travel and hospitality, you know, we really just came at it assuming it was 80% math, 20% process. And the reality is one of the things I've learned is it's it's 50-50. You could even argue it's 60-40 process. So, um, you know, when you think about uh, pricing in this space, you know, in the airline world, pilot doesn't care what you're charging, but a community manager and a leasing agent do, do care, right? So there's a lot more involvement there's much more mm-hmm. of a social contract, and the market's much more inefficient. I mean, American Airlines, United Airlines, basically trying to do the same thing. But as you and the listeners hopefully know, you know, there's lots of different investment strategies, and so the notion that there's a single optimal rent is just false. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's a lot that we didn't know we didn't know back then, and then more importantly, I guess to the heart of your question, what's changed? Um, the industry's gotten much more oriented to data, so that's actually a, a tailwind. It's, it's made it easier, right? Data's more accessible, computers are faster. There's a lot of things you can do today that you just couldn't do back then. Um, in the headwind category, 
you know, what, what's changed an uh, awful lot of rent control out there and rumblings of even more. Obviously, rent constraints and rent control are the bane of, of revenue optimization. So that's a little scary. But, mm-hmm. but aside from being scary, you need to handle it, right? Like there are some legitimate local concerns. I know it's a bit heretical for me to say that out loud. But, you know, certain constraints might be reasonable. <clears throat> and we've even seen constraints I never would have thought of back then. So, like, there's a market where if you're getting more than a 10% increase, you have to be given a 90-day notice instead of a 60-day notice. Or if you've been a tenant for more than three years, you have to be given longer notice. I mean, look, I, I'm not a fan of any constraints. I mean, I, I am a fan of, like, government minimalism. Let the market solve problems the market can solve and only come in as the government when they're unsolvable. But, you know, it, it, you know, is it reasonable to say, hey, look, if somebody's getting a massive increase, should, should they be given a little more time? Well, okay, not the end of the world. doesn't sure. stop me from charging more. It just means I have to meet certain conditions. But, you know, we never anticipated uh, that kind of rent constraint way back when. So just a lot of special cases have come up um, as the industry's matured and, you know, the software needs to grow to, uh, to match that. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, th- this is something that I, I have had some other conversations with others in the industry, and you're right. It is a bit heretical to even suggest that there are some constraints. But, you know, let, let's be honest about this. I mean, even 30 days can be pretty tight for, for a lot of people to figure out, you know, if you're going to get a significant uh, bump in your housing costs. Hey, what are you going to do? And especially, look, you know, it's tight inventory. Uh, you know, sort of things. It, it's a challenge for everyone across the board. And so I, yeah, I do agree. There's probably some reasonableness there in this sort of policies. Um, yeah, that, the, that one, the said, one thing I'll just add, if I can just add one thing real quickly there, because I mean, sure, I, I do leave room, room for some reasonableness. What I do get frustrated with, and frankly, it's folks like Senator Warren that drive me bonkers, <laughs> is they've already come up with the solution. And now they're mm. trying to find facts to support the solution. I mean, I, I think NMHC is on top of it that the single biggest challenge to affordability is lack of supply. Like, don't blame yes. the software for making things more efficient, right? If if the software is raising rents, it's because there's more demand than supply. If you raise the supply, the software is going to lower rents because now there's more supply than demand. So I, I do wish that the folks who are advocates for affordable housing would, instead of sort of cursing the wind, set a different sale. Right, don't curse microeconomics. Help make it easier to build housing for these people, and mm-hmm. then the wind will be at your back instead of at your front. Yeah. So, it, on that vein here, you know, your customers are the very people who have the opportunity. You know, are maybe building as well as buying and operating these uh, housing uh, facilities mm-hmm. and communities. Is there more supply on the way, or is is, or is everyone really being held back right now? And and I know the the number one talking point yeah. is interest rates are so high, but I, I think it, it probably goes a little bit deeper than that to be able to find a way to build yeah, new supply. I mean, I, I mean, certainly certainly, interest rates are an issue right now. I, I would actually argue the issue more recently is less about interest rates and more about, more about uncertainty around the interest rates, right? So just go back to May, mm. June with the Silicon Valley Bank, the regional bank crisis, and then the debt ceiling crisis, the industry right. practically froze for about 45 days. Not because interest rates were high, you know, I mean, compared to history, interest rates are about on par now. Granted, we had a long, long run of practically free money. Um, But the real issue was the uncertainty, right? If if I could, if the market could know that the Fed was not going to raise interest rates anymore 
and over the next mm-hmm. two years would probably come down a couple of times, right? Doesn't have to know that we're going to get back to 2% money or something like that, but just know that there's going to be stability. Then people will, will adjust around that and they'll, and they'll you know, pencil accordingly. I think the bigger concerns right now are more, it's hard to pencil out anything other than A-class properties because the cost of meeting all of the environmental studies and getting over all the regulatory hurdles to just get an approval, those mm-hmm. costs have to be amortized over the homes and that only pencils out A-class. Now you layer on where um, you know things like um, SEG are not usually topics of the boardroom but they're becoming so now, you know, interest, I mean, excuse me, interest, insurance expenses are just going through mm-hmm. the roof. That's hurting existing mm-hmm. properties, but it's also hurting pro formas for, uh, you know, for new builds. So I think, you know, some stability around insurance pricing, uh, some stability around interest rates. We mentioned rent control. If I'm going to go build something, but I'm not allowed to charge market rents, where's my motivation to build? So I think there's a lot of governmental and quasi-governmental things that are just creating headwinds that make it really, really hard to build. If we could build more housing, prices will come down. I mean, mm-hmm. we're not changing the fact that the, the uh, population is growing. So the population is growing, it's gonna need more housing. If, if we don't build more housing, there's only two things that can happen. Prices can go up or the government can intervene. Every study that's ever been done, when the government intervenes on price controls, it just reduces the quality of the product because then the landlord has no incentive to, to invest and you get deferred maintenance and, and that's how you ultimately get slums. All right. So I want to shift uh, angles shift here angles. a little bit and get into uh, what, you know, the, the, there's the war on spreadsheets and obviously mm-hmm. this is what tech companies have been talking about. Like get out of spreadsheets and, yeah. and some owners may be resistant to that saying, Hey, look, this is working. But I think we're really at a point now where like owners and managers and operators are coming and saying like, they know they're asking for new tools. What, what are you hearing that multifamily operators and managers, like what are they coming to you and saying, hey, we need this? That's not mm-hmm. a spreadsheet. Like what are they saying to you? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a growing realization that spreadsheets are not an enterprise tool, right? Or Excel's not an enterprise application. It's, it's great for, for ad hoc analysis, um, but it's very hard to democratize the data. So like on the BI side, what I hear or at least what I, when I talk about this, I just get bobblehead yeses, is if you've ever had three reports with four different occupancy numbers, right? You're living in Excel hell, right? Mm. You're living in that spread mart world, right? A data mart of spreadsheets. And, and you know, you know what, what happens with spread marts is each, each analyst has their own little data mart that they keep in spreadsheets. And even within an analyst, one calculates one way, Another spreadsheet, oh, you know what? I didn't count models as vacant. I counted them as not counting or whatever. So I, so I think, you know, what, what I hear is a frustration uh, around trusting the data, around, you know, if, if I have four different occupancy numbers and three different spreadsheets, how do I know which one's right? Even if they're within a few bits of each other, it just doesn't mm-hmm. feel right, right? It's like, it's like you walk on an airplane and if the seat is dirty, you wonder what you wonder about the engine. Right now, the person who cleans the inside is not the person who does the engine, but still, it's cues of of believability, cues of trust. So I hear that a lot. Um, I also hear from analysts on the BI side, you know, for the love of God, I spend eighty percent of my time collating data, 
right? And then only 20% analyzing. So, you know, at Reba, we like to joke a tagline, we're on a mission to get rid of VLOOKUPs and index statements, right? Because that's what you do. Mm -hmm. You download a bunch of reports from your PMS, copy and paste them all into one big Excel sheet, you know, link through VLOOKUPs, index statements, things like that. Now, we want to flip the script and give people nine, you know, 80 to 90% of their time to analyze and only a, a small percentage to actually collate. And then that really ties over in, into Reba Budget, right? The second product we have mm-hmm. where, I mean, last I saw a survey, about 70% of this industry does property budgeting in Excel, right? I know companies that have dozens and dozens, even hundreds of individual Excel workbooks, one per property. Well, you you can't roll that up. Um, you know, I, I, it, this is one I'll get bobblehead yeses again. If you've got more than 40 properties and you're doing Excel, Inevitably, at least one community manager or regional calls the last weekend before they're due in absolute hysteria, crying. They did something wrong. They stomped on it. It disappeared. What do they what do they do? And the sad answer is, yeah, you got to start from scratch and you got 24 hours to redo the whole thing. Right. So our our joke tagline there is Reba budget. No more tears. Right. Store it. <laughs> it's in a database. <laughs> you know, no more tears. It's, it's going to be there for you. Um, Is that you know, inspired so by the that. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne song? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure we're gonna we're gonna get Ozzy Osbourne. And may, maybe at our user conference we'll have Ozzy uh, do a, uh, do a song or two. You know, so so again, it's I mean, it's just it, it's you know what we're hearing are just the things that are limitations of Excel. And and you know, I love Excel, but um, you know, complex budgets. I mean, you know, one of the interesting things I had a conversation with the COO where. You know, they had California bond units. So for any listeners that don't know about a California bond unit, it's a program where you agree to have 20% of your homes be affordable. Rent's basically set by the government mm-hmm. or quasi-governmental organization. That gives you access to tax-free bonds to finance the property. It's a good trade-off. So 80% market, 20% rent constraint. Well, if you're doing your budgeting at a community level, you know, those two, those two, um, sets behave very differently. They renew at different rates. They have very different rent growths, et cetera. And mm-hmm. so you're left trying to calculate offline, sort of meld, well, what would the average rent growth be across the property? What would the average renewal rate be across the property, et cetera? Well, you know, you're only doing that because it's too complex in Excel to model at the unit or unit type level. Well, with databases and code, we can apply one set of drivers to the bond units, a different set of drivers to the, um, you know, to the market rate units, a different set of drivers to three bedrooms because they have a different seasonality than one bedrooms, et cetera. And so when you get out of Excel and into the database world, the data warehouse world, the built application world, there's mm-hmm. just so much more you can do to um, reduce the time spent on data collation, reduce the error rate, hence the no more tiers. And and you know deal with an enterprise wide capability. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean that makes a lot a lot of sense to me. And I every time you say no more tears, I cannot get the the melody of that song out of my head. Just go See, right. I'm, I'm I dating right myself because I remember being a kid in the Johnson and Johnson no more tears shampoo. That's what that's what comes. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you're right. I do remember yeah. those commercials. Yeah. yeah, they made look. You know, and now I think about it, they actually made bathing look terrible. Um, they probably induced more tears than they than they solved. Perhaps, uh, but, 
maybe that's the the beauty of some good sales and marketing where you just press on the pain <laughs> so much that it feels tangible. There you go. Uh, so all right, let's keep let's keep rolling here. You guys also have a, a newer product in beta that you've been bringing to yes. uh, owners and managers. Reba Rent, talk me yeah. through that. I know it's Reba just beta Rent. testing. No, no, it's out of beta test. It, oh, uh, we had our general release November 1st. Oh, yeah, okay, we nailed okay. it. We, uh, actually, we're really proud. I mean, back in February when we had our, our beta version, our MVP release, we set November 1st as the internal deadline. We told everybody fourth quarter to give us a little bit of slack. But we said internally November 1st because that was the first day of OpTech and mm-hmm. we nailed it. So it's not often on a nine or 10 month software Congrats project. Yet, you yeah. nail it. So yeah, so we released uh, we released Reba Rent. Uh, we already have six uh, signed pilots. We actually, as of the recording today, we have 2,800 units live. Uh, we'll have 15,000 by the end of the quarter. And oh. uh, we've got over 50,000 under contract right now. So yeah, Reba Rent is real and it's uh, already taken the industry by storm. No, that's phenomenal. And so practically walk me through here what problems yeah. it's really aimed at solving. Yeah. So the thing that I, I tell lots of people, if 2023 Donald could go back and teach 1999 Donald, one thing that 99 Donald was clueless on that 23 Donald knows, it would be this. And by way of background, right, listeners, I led the team that built LRO. We started building it in 99. It would be this. In 99, at the software company I was at, all of our revenue management experience was travel and hospitality. Mm-hmm. We knew that it was 80% math, 20% process, but we were wrong. In this industry, it's 50-50. It might even be 60-40 process because mm-hmm. you know this industry is very different than, than an airline seat, right? The pilot doesn't care what somebody right. in a seat is paying. Many managers and leasing associates do care, right? Mm-hmm. There's much more of a social contract tied to leasing, tied tied to living, to rental, housing, then to an airline ticket or hotel room. And microeconomically speaking, it's a much less efficient market, right? The big guys in the airline world are all pretty much trying to do the same thing. Our Mm -hmm. industry, there's lots of different strategies, right? In the airline world, at the touch of a button, you can know exactly what all the airlines are charging. In our industry, you can bounce around different ILSs and see different prices, right? So it's just less efficient. And the result of that is that there's a lot more about process that matters to win hearts and minds and to really work. And so that's that's a big difference is we really focused on the workflow, on the transparency, on how do you win hearts and minds. Um, the modeling is very different. This is not LRO 2.0. Um, mm-hmm. you know, happy to get into one-on-one conversations with people more about exactly what's different with the modeling. That's kind of some of our secret sauce. So I'll I'll be a little circumspect today with that. But I'll also tell you, the other thing is, is we focus a lot on total cost of ownership. One of the things that really um, bothered me for years about the legacy systems is nobody ever looked at how many people does it take to support this thing? And what can we do to make the software quicker, easier to understand? What can we do to make operators understand it faster so they don't even bother to ask questions mm-hmm. of, of the central pricing revenue manager? What can we do? Um, you know, The legacy systems, the pricing revenue manager has to click around and find things. And every time they don't find something, it's wasted time. So how can we point the pricing revenue manager to the areas where a human would best be involved? So with a different approach to modeling, with a real focus on total cost of ownership, and with a an emphasis on sort of the transparency and the understanding, it's, it's just a very different experience than any of the legacy systems. 
And one thing I was wondering about, I mean, because you, you guys are aggressively pursuing new products, taking them to market, but the, you mm -hmm. know, there's been dramatic swings the last few years, uh, yeah. all throughout housing, but multifamily seeing going from, you know, historic, uh, uh, mm -hmm. low vacancy rates to yeah. some markets. Now we're seeing incentives really being pushed strong. Um, yeah. how much is that impacting your roadmap? Like, do you, do you have a, you yeah, know, it, we know it, what the market's going to want, we build towards it, yeah. or are you trying to shift? No, it's a, it, it's a, it's a great question. It's a little bit of both. So one thing I just realized I should have mentioned also on Reba Rand, right, is another thing is with no technical debt, we got to start from scratch and mm. lots of things have changed since 1999, right? Rent control mm -hmm. was tiny in 1999, right? Now mm. there's threats of rent control everywhere and rent control is different, right? Here it's a cap. There it's a you can only increase rents, you know, once a year. Over here it's process oriented, right? Based mm -hmm. on longevity, people get more notice time, or based on the increase amount, they get more notice time. So there's there's lots of special cases where the legacy systems don't handle well. Um, they don't handle uh, lease ups or small count unit types very well. We have experience with single family rentals, so we got good at small count. Uh, as I mentioned, rent control is much broader much more complex so we can build it native instead of bolt on. Mm. And then concessions are a perfect example. You, you mentioned concessions, you know, the theory back in 99 to 2002 when LRO was born was that it was going to get rid of concessions. And so everything was net pricing. Well, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we're 21 years later and guess what? Concessions are alive and well. They're just as, uh, there are just as many concessions today as there were then. Yeah. And so, you know, let's build a system that allows the user to set the strategy of whether they want to control the gross rent and do concessions separately as a marketing mm -hmm. activity or a mm -hmm. pricing position activity, or do they want to do the traditional legacy approach of, you know, let's do net rent. And then if you want concessions, we mark up the gross. So we're not going to constrain people to one model. We're going to let them do different things. Um, so that's one big, big part of, of what change is. You know, the, the rest of the back, back to your other question is sort of, do we know better or do changes affect the roadmap? It, it's a little bit of both. And on the we know better, I really I don't mean it in those exact words, because that, that's pretty arrogant. Right. To say that I know better than everybody else. Like, come on, nobody really knows better. Collectively, we have a much higher intelligence. What I will say, though, is the secret sauce that my partner, Chris Preston, I have is we're the only ones that were doing rental housing BI in 2002, 2003. So we've been doing it for 20, 21 years. We've mm -hmm. developed through eating the dog food, through having to live with it, 10 years at Archstone, you know, various consulting projects since. So we've developed a number of metrics and a number of approaches to dealing with the metrics that are really mm -hmm. quite unique. And so it's not that we know better, it's that we've got the battle scars of having done it wrong. And now we've learned what to do right. And so we can jumpstart people 20 years of experience, right? At the same time, you know, centralization wasn't a big deal back then. Centralization is a bigger deal today. That has implications for how you build dashboards, what metrics you care about, et cetera. And so if all we did was fixate on what, you know, was great for those 10 years in our Archstone career, well, we'd miss some of these new trends. And, you know, really when I think of you say, do we know better? Do we just listen in our roadmap, you know, jerks all over the place? We try to find that middle path where we take advantage of the lessons we've learned and bring that to the table, right? We're on a mission 
to change how the industry uses data. And we listen intently to where are the trends, what matters, what new metrics, what new processes uh, are important because of that, and, and how do we continue to evolve and enhance the software. Got it. You, Got it. you mentioned something you that made me think of uh, another question here. And, and, and that is like, in multifamily, one of the challenges that, that I hear from other startup founders is, you know, managers and, and owners are hesitant to bring on a, a new solution because they want to mm -hmm. see that it works. And yep. that's a, that's a, you know, I think that's one of the headwinds that no matter who you are as a startup, you're facing in this industry because there's oh, a hesitancy sure. to like implement a new system or integrate to a new platform or a tool or something and not yep. knowing what effect is going to have on the business. You've got yep. some experience uh, ahead of others mm -hmm. of using similar tools and building similar yep. tools. Has, has that come in handy in overcoming those objections or do you also face oh. those objections? <laughs> Both. Yes, we face those. Yes, we face those objections, and it comes in very handy. Uh, you know, one of one of the stories I tell COOs and CEOs is on BI. If you've never had good business intelligence, it's very hard to see the path. Like I know I'm writing this check, right? This check is hard dollars. I'm gonna get this fuzzy return around make better decisions faster. What does that really mean, right? Mm -hmm. and that's really hard to understand. It's hard to bring to life. Uh, in fact, we have, a, we have a white paper coming out in the next couple months where we interviewed a bunch of our customers about what they were getting out of Reba BI, and we're going to tell their stories to bring it to life. But in the past, oh, what cool. I've done is, is, tell, is, is hold these CEOs and COOs. Here's what's interesting. Every COO or CEO I know who ended up with good BI, mm -hmm. if they leave that company and go to another operator that doesn't have BI, all of a sudden, they feel like they're flying blind, and BI becomes their number one or two, uh, you know, initiative for the next year. So when you've never had it, you don't know what you're missing, right? A fish doesn't know it's in water; it doesn't know there's this thing called land out there that might be different. But once you've mm -hmm. experienced it, you go, "Hey, maybe I kind of like this, right? I kind of like walking around. I kind of like picking an apple from the tree." To really stretch that metaphor, um, and and so it's it's been fascinating to me how hard it is to get somebody to do it the first time. And then once they've done it, if they ever don't have it, they're just like, oh my God, I don't know how to run the business. And so I think those stories resonate, right? Like it was mm -hmm. much harder 10 or 15 years ago, but I can I can point uh, C-suite people to folks who've had BI for a while who can speak mm -hmm. their language. It's not me, the vendor, trying to make the sale. Like just talk authentically with this COO, with this head of tech, with this, head of asset management, you know, over there and, and let them share some stories of, of how this has helped their business. Um, so like I said, yes, we run into it and the experience we have to tell stories and connect people. And, you know, I, I don't want to believe my own propaganda too much. Um, but, you know, Chris and I and the team have a pretty good reputation for having delivered the goods, you know, back with pricing in, in the aughts. So, you know, people come at least willing to listen to us. You know, still got to, you know, they're still from Missouri. Show me. We got to, we got to prove it to them. But, you know, there are lots of good examples now out there. Whereas 10 or 15 years ago, there were very few examples, um, at least not in the industry. Totally makes sense. I, I, I get that. The other objection I often hear, and it's very particular to the multifamily vertical, is mm -hmm. oftentimes, you know, the the tool that you're you're selling or the platform you're selling, the user is not the buyer. 
And so yeah. you have like, you've got different stories that have to align oh, and incentives that have to align, you know, how do you, how are you getting past that? Because the, you know, the daily user versus who the one is writing the check yeah. are so different. How do you get them to see this, the same um, picture, the same story? Yeah. I mean, when we're working with C-suite personnel who really do authentically care about their associates, right? Everybody says they do, but who really authentically cares? That's a whole lot easier because they're more aware. It, it's mm -hmm. funny you bring that question up because my CRO and I were talking just last week about um, we sometimes run into a challenge with Reba Budget where a COO isn't feeling the pain, right? Because the community managers and regionals, right? They're the ones that spend hours upon hours building this thing, working around challenges. Um, if the COO asks a question, they're the ones up till two in the morning trying to you know figure it out or fix it in the tool. And so mm -hmm. we've literally had um, COOs tell us, well, save times. I mean, budgeting hasn't been a big problem for my people. And I'm sort of like, well, have you talked to them recently? Because we've talked to some of them and the stories they're telling us about how many hours they're spending and the struggles they're having, well, they're not sharing that with you because they don't think they don't think they have permission to complain about that, right? It's been the same way for ten years, and you know you're just not you're not feeling that pain. But trust me, it's really out there. And look, buy from me, don't buy from me, but for the sake of your people, like go mm -hmm. ask a few questions or have maybe have one of your lieutenants go ask the question, right? So they get the honest answer. Not the answer that I give to the C-suite person who's scaring the heck out of me because they never call me for, right? So how do we bring the real world experience to life? Interesting. That, that's that's the key to overcoming that. As I said, some executives are very empathetic and seek that out. You know, others, they could still be very successful, but candidly, they sit in their ivory tower and they don't necessarily feel that pain. So how do we get them to understand what's really happening in the field? I guess I'll make one more comment. I remember for the 10 years I was at Archstone, Oh my God, I loved going out in the field. I literally never went to a site and didn't learn something new, right? I remember, you know, I could spend a day at headquarters and not learn anything new. But on site, I always learned something new about what was really happening. And my favorite example was like coming back and sharing with one department, hey, they've got a real problem on site, X, Y, Z. Oh, well, I mean, we haven't heard about, you know, nobody's complained about that for two years. And mm -hmm. I was like, well, are they not complaining because they don't have the problem? Or are they not complaining because as operators, when they complained two years ago and you didn't do anything about it, they just gave up and said, well, we got to figure out how to make this work. Like operators in the field, God bless them. They don't have, they, they can't kvetch. They have to fix toilets, move people in, clean carpets, et cetera. And they will find a way to work around whatever barriers you put in their place. And they won't necessarily complain because if they don't think they're going to get heard, they just don't find value in that and they just figure out a workaround. So I'm always right. Might as well just figure it out. No use yeah. in, in crying about but, it. Yeah. But you go on site and actually watch them do their work. And all of a sudden you come back with a list of six different things that headquarters could fix with technology, mm. change a policy, add to the training and make their lives so much easier. And it's not just about making their lives easier. It's about freeing their time to serve the customer more. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, it's, it's all about empathy. It's all about observation. Oh, that's so good. I, that's something I constantly talk about when, I, when I'm working with different marketing and sales teams is that everything starts from a position of empathy and you can't have 
a position of empathy without truly understanding the, the pains and desires of your customer or whoever you're, you're working with. And that takes a little bit of discovery to, to get to that point. Well, Donna, we're going to shift here. I'm going to jump down towards the bottom of the show. Uh, a segment I like to call for the future for the future is when I get to ask each guest who comes on the show to give their best predictions based on the following four questions. Are you ready to play? Okay. I don't know how good my crystal ball is, but I'll give it a shot. <laughs> All right. First one here. What does Reba look like one year from now? Oh God. One year from now, we will be at least double the revenue of what we are today. Um, probably 50% more people. Um, Reba Rent will have been out there for a year. So, you know, we'll already be on to V2, um, maybe even heading towards V3 on that. Um, I think we'll see continued improvement, um, you know, with our BI and, and budget adoption. Uh, 2024 for us is really about execution. We spent the last three and a half years getting to this rapid growth phase. And so now it's execute on the go-to-market to keep that growth pace, keep growing and scaling our implementation teams, you know, deliver, deliver, deliver. That, that's us a year from now. Very cool. All right. So that, here's the, here's the one you'll need your crystal ball for five years from now. Can multifamily operators, owners be successful without using some sort of AI revenue management tool? Could, I'm sorry. Could you repeat that question? It broke up a little here. Oh yeah. Sorry. Let me go ahead and mark that one. No worries. <clears throat> All right. Number two, five years from now, can multifamily owners and managers, operators, can they be successful without using some sort of AI revenue management? You know, it's funny. If you asked me that question six years ago, I would have said no. Um, today, uh, I'm actually pretty cynical on AI for revenue management. But let me explain what I mean by that. Um, I, I, you know, it's important to understand predictive AI versus generative AI. So absolutely, three to five years from now, maybe even sooner, I expect generative AI interfaces to make it easier for non-technical people to interact with um, technical or analytical solutions. Absolutely. When it comes to the predictive analytics side, machine learning is very powerful, but it needs it needs terabytes, even petabytes of data to be accurate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have megabytes in this industry, maybe gigabytes in a couple places. Okay, but on the leasing side, you know, it's leads and leases and move outs and early terminations. And, and, and so you can you can wax philosophic about AI, you know, but the reality is different tools are better at different things. So, you know, to use the analogy, I, I can I can screw in a flat top screw with a chisel. It might work and I might slip and cut myself. So it's not really the tool I should use. Right. In, in getting a little mathy, if you have really small data set problems, use Bayesian uh, statistics. If you have the kinds of size problems that pricing in rental housing is, you know, traditional statistical modeling works really, really well. And then if you have truly big data uh, uh, challenges, of which there are many in, you know, U.S. industry, not as many in rental housing, that's where machine learning and AI have its biggest impact on the predictive mm -hmm. analytics, right? So. You know, AI covers a multitude of sins. I very much separate predictive analytics from generative AI. I appreciate that thorough answer there. Number three here on for the future, what's one industry trend you think will continue, but you wish would go away? Oh, but I wish, damn, the first part of the answer, I was going to say centralization, but I don't wish that would go away. I spent 10 years at Archstone trying to, 
figure out how to crack the one for hundred uh, model of, of uh, hiring or staffing, and obviously centralization can fix that. So a, a trend. Um, here's a trend that I see happening that I wish would go away. Um, right in the middle of COVID, everybody um, was amazed at how much sites could absorb in new technology, and people, you know, opined about how we had changed the paradigm on change management in the industry. And I even blogged back then going, yeah, color me a cynic. We're doing that right now because there's uh, existential risk. I'll bet you as soon as the existential risk goes away, we're going to go right back to our slow plotting days of not wanting to overload the field, et cetera. And I will tell you, in the last year, I've absolutely seen that trend continue. We are mm-hmm. slowing down the pace of innovation and it's beginning to match pre-COVID days. And I wish that would go away. And I wish we would go back to the pace that we embraced during COVID. There's absolutely nothing about COVID that I ever want to bring back. But it showed us how much our teams could tolerate technology and tolerate change. If only we would trust them. And I feel like we're back to, you know, don't want to upset the apple cart, can only do one or two things a year, et cetera. I think this industry can move a lot faster. We proved it. That's a really fascinating observation. Um, I've not heard that one yet. So I appreciate that. All right. Last one here on for the future. What's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of tech advances? Uh, you know, I mean, staffing is going to change dramatically. Um, the places where, you know, back to my comment on centralization, uh, certainly generative AI like leasing bots and service bots and all those kinds of things. Uh, You know, places where humans add human value will always be there. Places where humans are doing repetitive administrative tasks will be replaced. Uh, And, you know, a couple of years ago, I worried about that. Like, would the change be too sudden and and really disrupt employment patterns? Uh, I'm not as worried about that today because if you – Listen, over the last year or two, um, it's really hard to find people to be leasing associates, to be, you know, various, various positions. So, you know, the reality is maybe the technology is actually what's going to save us from how hard it is to find people to do those jobs now, as opposed to the technology is going to make those jobs obsolete. And all of a sudden we're going to have a bunch of people, you know, sitting in floating chairs with nothing to do. So, um, yeah, I think the staffing models. And, and what people focus on will continue to change dramatically. That's pretty cool. Donald, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing uh, about your experience in the industry. Obviously, you've seen a lot, uh, maybe probably a lot more than uh, a very high majority of those of us in prop tech. Um, and uh, your contributions is uh, greatly appreciated. Now, before we close out the show here, for those who want to get in touch with you or learn more about Reba, where do they go? How do they do that? Sure. I mean, uh, learn about Reba at our website, uh, www.getreba.com. Uh, you can reach me by email, first initial, last name. So ddavidoff at getreba.com. Check out our LinkedIn uh, company or my own personal LinkedIn pages as well. Awesome. And of course, a bunch of those links will be up on the website, technest.io. You can always get them there. Until um, next time, we'll see you later. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for listening to Technest. The PropTech Podcast. Find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode on technest.io.
You can get future episodes delivered to your ears directly by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcast apps. Follow TechNest on social media to stay up to speed on new developments, resources, and announcements in PropTech. Your support is greatly appreciated. There's two ways you can directly support this podcast. Share episodes you find interesting, and then leave a review of the show in the App Store. From Nate and the TechNest team, thanks for listening.